Hey, just a reminder before we jump into the message this morning that inside of your bulletin, there is an insert. The front page of the insert says a shining grace, and that's basically the outline, all the main points in the scriptures that we're going to be using in the message this morning. Uh, as we continue our series, Shine, through the book of, or the letter we know as Philippians. And then on the back side, we have the MPG. And just as a reminder, if this is your first time with us, you know, we typically think of MPG as miles per gallon. And that's how far you can go take the car down the road, how far you can go on a gallon of gas. For us, MPG stands for Memorize, Pray, and Glorify. And it's about how far you can take the sermon down the road. Don't let it be just something that you participate, experience on Sunday morning, but use the the message this morning, and this will help you do that, to take it further down the road. And uh, before we jump into the uh, the message this morning, just a reminder too, uh, you know, sometimes, you you know, we come to church and, and, and something happens that's very profound. Uh, it could be very emotional, but there's a change in the way that we think about life. And one of the things that changes is the direction or the trajectory of our life. And there's, there's just maybe some things that have happened in the last couple of days or the last couple of weeks or months that has you thinking about the meaning of life. And in thinking about it, there's an intersection of, of God and God's Word, the Gospel, um, there's the, you know, a message maybe that you hear or something that somebody says or you sing about that makes you want to change your life and to connect to the kingdom of God. And we would love more than anything else for you to become a disciple of Jesus today. That is, that is our mission, to love God and to love people and to change the world. And the primary way of changing the world is helping people to change their relationship with God, to become a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. It is the most significant life. I think it is a life that is the hope of the world, that, that people will begin to embody the gospel in such a way that it glorifies God and begins to fill, fill the earth with the knowledge of God the way that the waters fill the seas. And if that describes you this morning, we want you to talk to one of the shepherds, come down to the front and talk to me or one of the other staff ministers. We'd love, we would love to be able to spend some time, open up the word of God and to talk to you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, as you know, we are looking at this letter we call Philippians in the New Testament scriptures and the Christian scriptures, and we're calling it Shine basically on this because of this one text we find in the middle of chapter 2. And that's where Paul says, You will shine among them like stars in the sky. You will shine among them like stars in the sky. Now, nobody says that a garbage pail or a trash can or a dumpster shines. What shines are things that are beautiful. A beautiful bride just radiates beauty. A beautiful smile gleams and and beams. A beautiful diamond just sparkles and it, it radiates light. And something that is shiny is also noticeable. I mean, it catches your eye. It grabs your attention. It, it commands your, your imagination. And so what Paul is telling the church in Philippi 21 centuries ago and telling the church in San Antonio, Texas today is that we are to, we are to shine, which means that the church is a beautiful and noticeable presence shining in the world. The church is a beautiful and noticeable presence shining in the world. That, that means that the church is to have this outstanding character. The, the church is beautiful like nothing else in the community. And that kind of beauty, that kind of character, that kind of shine goes out into the world. And in our first lesson, we talked about how part of that shine has to do with how we love 
our brothers and sisters, the brethren, the church. We called it shining people. We're thankful for the faithful. That's what Paul does at the beginning of the letter. He says, I thank God every time I remember you in Philippi. And one of the things that stands out to us and why we're thankful for the people that we call brothers and sisters is that we are saints. Saint is not a special person in the sense of a high degree of holiness that nobody else has. A saint is one of the ways, in fact, it's the most popular way, the, the, the way most common in the New Testament that a, a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, is referred to, which means that you are holy as God is holy. It means that you are returning to being a true image bearer of God, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We are saints. People of God should be like no other people in the world. And because God's Spirit in it is in us, that's one of the other things that Paul talks about in the first chapter. That we are a God work in practice. That God is working in our life and he, he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. And not only that, not only are we saints and a God work in progress, but we're also the body of Christ. That we are one people. That we are one mind. That we are like one person. We are the body of Christ. And as a team, we are working together to bring beauty and to bring change to the world. The second thing that we looked at in Philippians that helps the church to shine in the community is, is our unity. We are a community of unity, but it's not a unity that is based on a lot of other things. It's really based on just one thing, and let me illustrate that for you. I want you to think in your mind of the name of the streets that you live on right now. Have that in your mind. I'm going to say one, two, three, and all of us together with one voice are going to say the name of the street that we personally live on today. Ready? One, two, three. Oak Pebble. I, you know, I don't know where any of you live after listening to that. All right? Now, we're going to do this again. We'll do this again. I'm going to count to three, and I want you to say the name out loud of the person who died on the cross to save you from your sins and to give you new birth into a new kind of life in the kingdom of God. Ready? One, two, three. Jesus. You see, the basis for our unity is not where we live, but who lives in us. It is Jesus of Nazareth. And then last week we looked at how we shine in suffering. Suffering is inevitable in this world. We live in a fallen world. It, there is the curse, the thorns and the thistles. And what that means is that somewhere down the road, if not already, there's going to be an opportunity for you to suffer and to deal with pain, to deal with a setback, to deal with disappointment. There's going to be intimidation. Something's going to make you nervous. And you are going to be given the opportunity to shine in that moment and to, to shine because you have chosen a new intention for your life. And that is, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What that means is that the gain, the eternal gains that we have in Christ will always triumph. They will always outshine the temporary pains of this life. We do not deny pain. We don't deny the reality of suffering or of fallenness. We want to be very realistic. It is a tough world to live in at times, but there is a new intentionality about our life, and that is to exalt Christ and all that that means. Now this morning, in the fourth lesson, next week we'll end this series. I want to I talk about grace a little bit. Um, there are a lot of mysteries in my marriage to Ellen. Whatever happened to my stuffed piranha? That is a mystery to this day. In fact, I think it's been solved and I don't like the answer to it. Whatever happened to my life-size Willie Nelson poster? It disappeared. 
Maybe the biggest controversy of all and the biggest mystery, there's her version and then there's the truth, is who kissed who on the first date? Who kissed who first on that first date? Now, with all of those mysteries, there are, though, two things in my marriage that are not a mystery. Why she married me and why she stays married to me. And the answer to both of those are the same. It's because she loves me. It's not because I'm, I'm lovable or, or cute or adorable or all that in a bag of chips. She loves me in spite of me, and one of the things that is a blessing to me is I see the evidence of it every day. I can do the most awful thing, and she will not stop loving me. And she would say the same thing about my love for her. In fact, in a manner of speaking, I can say that each and every day she is gracious to me in that love. I don't deserve it, but there it is. So receiving this kind of grace from her, this kind of gift, this love that will never stop, that loves me in spite of myself, loves me in spite of the awfulness that I can be at times, how do, how do I live in light of that? Do I decide that I'm going to put that love to the test each and every moment? You know, Paul talks about that in Romans 5 and Romans chapter 6. You know, God's grace is so good. Why don't we just keep sinning and allow grace to abound so that God is more glorified? And Paul says, are, 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 are you thinking straight? No. So do I put that kind of love to the test and just say, you know, she loves me like this, I'm just going to give it a run for its money? Or do I decide, in the greatness of that love, that I'm going to live my life worthy of that kind of love? Which brings us to the end of the first chapter of Philippians, where Paul has been you know, wanting to talk about the greatness of God's love for us. And he says, all these things that you're going to face on a day-to-day basis, at the end of the first chapter, he says, whatever happens... Whatever happens, because of these great things that happen in your life, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, the word grace shows up only three times in Philippians, two in chapter 1, one time in chapter 4. But the letter just exudes the greatness of heaven's grace and of, of heaven's love. And when you think about the scope of Philippians, there is no better place to see it than what is the most famous and perhaps the most, the most important passage in Philippians. And in this particular passage, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is describing the mindset of Jesus that just changes everything. Because this is Jesus' identity and his identity giving, giving birth to actions. Everything is different. Now, the specific context is teaching us to think about each other the way that Christ thinks about us. I want to read it to you, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, who, talking about Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, he being made in human likeness. Some of the other versions say he humbled himself. Others say he emptied himself. And then he continues, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Not obedient part of the way or obedient because of what he could get out of God, but obedient all the way, even to death, and not just death, even to death on a cross. Now, it's an incredibly profound passage. It talks about the incarnation, and on the surface, that is absolutely what it's about. What we want to do for the next couple of minutes is just plow a little bit more deeply in the thought, and there's a progression that begins with this. When we think about Jesus, 
Jesus exists in eternity as God the Son. When Paul says that Jesus made himself nothing, that he emptied himself, he does not mean that Jesus stopped being God the Son in order to incarnate, to become flesh, in order to go to the cross. It was not a decision to stop being God, but it is the very action that defines what it means to be God. Jesus humbled himself. Now, as an aside, friends, this this is one of the reasons why pride is such a heinous sin in in the Scriptures, both the the Jewish Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures. There is is a... a, um, uh, a horribleness that is attached to pride like no other sin. It is, it is, it is, and the reason that it is def- talked about this way and defined this way in the Bible in terms of its sinfulness is that it expresses human pride, our arrogance, our self-centeredness, our egocentric way of living is the complete opposite of the nature of God. That's why pride is such a horrible horrible sin and has no place in the body of Christ. By being God the Son, that means that Jesus is doing precisely what, is, what it means to be the true God. Being God the Son means doing what God did and humbling Himself. That is the nature of God. Which secondly means that God the Son becomes one of us. He becomes human, and not just any human, but He is a humble human and an obedient human to a heaven-ordained course of action. Which means that in Jesus doing what He's doing by not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, but humbling Himself or emptying Himself in order to become like us, He is pulling together on the cross everything that is fragmenting and separating and falling apart because of sin. And then as one of us, God the Son goes to the cross for us to reconcile us to God. That's what Paul is talking about when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. What this means is this. The Lord's Supper every week. The Lord's Supper every week we have in hand bread, which represents a body, and fruit of the vine. We have juice that represents blood. And in partaking of these, we are reminding that this is who God is. This is the nature of God. To do what Jesus did in leaving heaven to become like us and dying on the cross. And not only who He is, but why He did it. This is what equality with God meant. Self-giving and self-sacrificing love. The incarnation and crucifixion of Jesus are among the truest self-expressions of what it means to be the true God. It fleshes out what it means for Him to be our Father. It fleshes out what it means for Him to love us even when we're awful. This is why John the Apostle can say at the beginning of the Gospel, he writes, entitled John, He can say, God so loves the world that He what? He gave His only, one and only, His unique Son in order whoever believes in Him should have life and not perish. It's why Jesus can say in John chapter 10 that I'm the good shepherd. 
And as a good shepherd, I laid down my life for the sheep. In John chapter 15, towards the end of his life, he says, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down, which means to die for one's friends. And in 1 John chapter 3, the same John says, this is how we know what love is. You know how you know what love is? When you look at Jesus, it's Jesus Christ laying down His life for us. This is why, as a community of faith, as the body of Christ and disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, that we define love this way. Love is not what I can get out of you. I don't love you for what I can get out of you. I don't love you to a certain point and no further. Love means it's all the way, even to death. And we define love this way. Love is to will the good of another. This is what Jesus does when he leaves heaven and he becomes like us and he lives that perfect life and he dies on the cross to be resurrected three days later. It is love that allows us to be reconciled to God. And this is precisely why we are told that God is love. 1 John chapter 4. Our salvation is something only God could do. And because God is love, He does it. And this is why it's a grace. That's why it's gift to us. Justice is getting what you and what I deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And that is the love of God and reconciliation to God and His Spirit in us and no condemnation and eternal life and overcoming death and a life with significance and a life in the kingdom. So knowing that, knowing that this is the nature of God and Jesus is revealing that love to us and what He did in the Incarnation and that we are now saved, that we can go to sleep at night knowing there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, how in the world are we going to live? We don't work hard as disciples of Jesus in order to win something or to merit something or to earn something that has already been given to us as a gift. So what do we do? Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You are loved so profoundly and richly. We we are so blessed We live a life that's worthy of that kind of love. Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2 that you continue to work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. It's a grace. It's a gift. But you work out your salvation the way that you work out a math problem until you get the answer, until until you get further down the road. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purposes. It's God working in you from the first day to the last day on planet Earth as a disciple of Jesus. And in this text, He gives us three things to think about in terms of living that worthy life. The first one is this, live every day with a gospel perspective. You live every day. There's not one day. I mean, not just Sundays and Wednesday nights. You live every day of your life with a gospel perspective. And here's how he says in Philippians 2, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. There is no greater contradiction in the church or in the world than a disciple of Jesus who is negative and grumpy and cantankerous. You know, like they were baptized in vinegar. 
But let's be real. Negative and grumpy and cantankerous is a very natural way to live in the fallen world. That's the expectation where there is all manner of horror and pain upon pain upon pain upon suffering, sometimes for days and months and years on end. But the gospel comes into your life as a gift that is not only world-transforming, but it is a history-changing power. You have been rescued. We have, as the body of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, we have been rescued. We have been forgiven of everything. Our sin is as far from God as the east is from the west, which is infinitely. We are loved by the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in between. We are loved by one who would literally die for us and who literally did. We have been given mind-boggling and rich resources to change and to be transformed. And not only to live a significant life, but to live a life that is full of joy and peace. And to be courageous knowing that every important question in our life has been answered. And one of the first things you do to live a life worthy of the gospel is to live a gospel perspective. The second thing is this, to let go of the garbage in your life. You let go of the garbage in your life. You know, Paul was as achievement-oriented in his early life as anyone. By the time that, that Paul is on the scene, Judaism has become one gigantic meritocracy. And Paul was living under the, under the assumption that he was doing a great job of earning his way all the way to God. That he was, he was building a resume of achievement that God would look at and say, Oh yeah, we've got to have you on our team. And that's what Paul is doing. He's building achievement upon achievement, building the resume, building the resume, building the morality resume, building the resume, until he runs into reality on the road to Damascus, and reality is spelled J-E-S-U-S. And he gets knocked to the ground, and he's blinded for three days, and in that physical blindness, he's seeing spiritually for the first time in his life. And he sees that all of this stuff that I was basing my life on is really nothing. He's going to call it garbage or rubbish. And he's not saying that excellent work in the name of Jesus is a wrong thing. No, that's living your life worthy of the gospel that's come into your life. But he's not basing his worth. He's not basing his salvation on what he's done. And so he says it this way, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, that is what I'm able to achieve with my bones and my muscles... I have more. And he begins to give the resume, circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. And that always gets him. Because he realizes that all of this greatness that he was doing with his life, this building of this morality resume that was going to impress God, actually, in his great intellect, he was actually part of killing the Messiah. How humbling was that to somebody as intelligent who was basing their worth on their intelligence like Paul. Persecuting the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But then he says, but I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him. It's a grace. It's a gift for you to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Brothers and sisters, who we are and what we are goes way beyond any moral achievement that we might get to. In fact, as a disciple of Jesus, we understand that whatever morality, that we've, level of morality or righteousness that we've been able to attain is part, part of the transformation process of God putting His Spirit in us. We are not who we will be. We're in that trajectory. But we're certainly not who we were ten years ago. And this is the power of God's grace working in our life. So you live a gospel perspective. I mean, what is there really to carp about and to grumble about and to be cantankerous about? Everything that is important for all of eternity has been taken care of, and you didn't have, and I didn't have to do anything to get it. I'm not going to be grumpy. I'd argue. I mean, there are things to stand up for, and there's a truth to plead for. But if God, the Son, can humble Himself the way that Jesus did, that's, that's how we should live. And let's let go of the garbage that somehow we think that we've done something special just because we've gotten to a certain place or overcome some, some things in our lives that needed to be overcome. That's not by our power. That's our cooperation with the Spirit of God that comes into our life as a power. And then number three, lock onto the goal. He says in verse 13, One thing I do, one thing, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. When Paul says that we are citizens of heaven, he does not mean that they were waiting around until they could go and live there. Um, to be a citizen of Rome did not mean that you were just waiting around until retirement so that you could go live in Rome. This, what it meant is that wherever you were living, in whatever colony you might be living, to be a citizen of Rome meant that you lived there and you represented the values of Rome. It, it meant that you represented the, the things that were most important to being a Roman. That's what you showed. That's what you lived. That's what you exhibited as a citizen of Rome. Paul's saying the same thing about citizenry in heaven. We're not waiting around here until we can get there. What he's saying is that we are here and we represent the kingdom of God in this place. We are citizens of heaven representing God on earth. Our responsibility is what we pray our entire discipled life, and that is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we await our Lord and Savior Jesus to come and to transform everything by his power. Jesus' body was made wonderfully alive after his brutal death on the cross in the resurrection. And Paul is saying, when Jesus comes, he will transform our bodies to be like his. Death and decay will never touch us again. But until then, 
We represent the kingdom of God. Well, back to Ellen and me. Today, Ellen and I have been married 14,560 days, just short of 39 years. After 14,560 days of marriage, I am a better husband than on day one, by a long shot. And I've attended a lot of seminars, and I've taught the seminars, I've read the books, although good. They are not the things that really changed me. They helped, and they were... they put ideas together and such. But I'm a better husband on the 14,560th day than I am on the first day because of my wife's love for me. That's the thing that transforms. The, the books did a lot for me, but what really happened was done because of love that came into my life as a grace. And that's what happens when we become disciples of Jesus. It's not what we've done. We are trusting God to do what we could never do for ourselves. We are living a life that is not just a blessing to us, but it's really the hope of the world. That's how the world is changed, by the gospel coming into each and every heart and changing people from the toes to the heart. And we're saved by grace as a gift. We live a life that is worthy of that great gift. Sing with me. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine all the time. Let it shine, oh yeah. Because I'm saved by grace, not works, I'm going to let it shine. Because I'm saved by grace, not works, I'm going to let it shine. Because I'm saved by grace, not works, I'm going to let it shine. Slow it down. Let it shine all the time. Let it shine. Oh, yeah. Let's stand and sing.